Hello and welcome back to another episode from Season 2 of Talking Terror. I'm John Morrison. Today's episode was recorded on November 27th, 2018. Welcome back and uh, sorry it's taken a bit longer than expected to get this second episode out, but I promise you it is worth the wait. We are delighted to have on board today's episode uh, Dr. Michael Kenny, the author of The Islamic State in Britain, Radicalization and Resilience in an Activist Network. A really interesting chat with Mike about this work and about Al-Mahajroon as a whole. But before we get on to that, I'm delighted to to let you know and to remind you that this season of Talking Terror is sponsored by our friends at IB Taurus. And as a result of this sponsorship, they are delighted to offer all of our listeners a 35% discount off the regular retail price of all books categorized in Middle East and politics uh, on the Bloomsbury website www.bloomsbury.com so go and have a look and see if there are any books which may be of interest to you just at the checkout put in the discount code TALKINGIBT19 that's TALKINGIBT in all capitals and the number 19 that's all one word TALKINGIBT19 and also if you or anyone you know is interested in doing an MSc in terrorism and counter-terrorism studies, look no further than that course we are offering here at Royal Holloway University of London, offered from our central London Bedford Square campus starting in September, October 2019. It's offered either as a full-time, one-year or a part-time, two-year master. So, Go on to our website to find out more about it and be sure to drop us an email if you've got any questions in relation to this program. As always, be sure to follow us on Twitter at terror underscore podcast and follow me personally at Morrison underscore JM. But enough of that, enough of that promotional uh, uh, activity. Let's get on with today's podcast. So, Mike, thanks so much for being on board. Thank you for having me, John. It's it's a thrill and a pleasure to be here. Oh, it's it's great to have you on board. Could you tell us first of all, how did someone based in Pennsylvania come to research a group and a movement like Al Mahajroon? It's not the obvious. It's not the obvious uh, topic to be looking at. It's a great question. What happened was in all the way back in two thousand and seven. I was in London uh, under funding for a research project which was looking at both the UK and Spain on organizational learning and Islamist militancy. The research was going well in some respects and not so well in others. Specifically, I was frustrated with my lack of ability to get an entree into a working extremist group. I came to London and through a contact was given Anjum Chowdhury's phone number and was able to establish contact with him. Um, That led to a subsequent meeting in which I was able to meet with uh, one of the leaders of Al-Muhajroon and three of his young followers. We had a very productive discussion in a park in South London. Um, We said our goodbyes. I went my way. They went their way. That was in 2007, remember. Then, 
in the fall of 2010 as I was working on a larger project with my PI, Dr. John Horgan, and my co-PI, Dr. Mia Bloom, and a handful of other wonderful colleagues and researchers. As part of that project, I returned to London and reestablished contact with Al-Muhajirun. What happened was a couple of things. First, they remembered me. And second, they remembered that I had protected their privacy and the confidentiality of what they told me. In other words, I didn't go running off to the media saying, I did this, I did that, and look at me. Um, another interesting development was those three young followers who I had first met three years earlier had not only continued in the movement, but they had since risen in the network hierarchy and were now directing groups of their own. They remembered me and they basically opened their world to me. They started letting me, t taking me around. They, they let me go to their Dawa stalls to go to their protests. Later on, I was able to get access to their private educational center uh, in Whitechapel. Um, and so it wasn't just the interviews, the interviews were a big part of it, but it was also the participant observation. And so they trusted me to a limited degree and they trusted me enough to open their world to me and to give me access to the movement. For our listeners who aren't aware of the movement, who exactly are Al-Mahajirun? Where do they come from? What do they stand for? And what, what, what's the manifestation of their beliefs? How do they uh, try and achieve their goals? Very good. So Al-Mahajirun actually started as a splinter group they were a splinter group of Hizba Tahrir in Britain. What happened was that the original emir, uh, Omar Bakri Muhammad, who had led HT in Britain for about 10 years, had a falling out with the leaders and decided with a couple of young followers to branch off on his own. So in January of 1996, Omar Bakri Muhammad, Anjum Chowdhury, and a third activist who left a few years later without escalating into violence. He left and he moved on with his life and he became a successful professional here in Britain. The three of them started the group and it grew from there. Uh, Omar Bakri was a very popular figure among Islamist circles. Back then he was your kind of garden variety HT Islamist. A number of followers from HT in Britain basically followed him to the new platform, Al-Muhajirun. Al-Muhajirun followed largely the same Islamist ideology of HT, but it also went much further than HT because for Al-Muhajirun, a cornerstone of their activism from the beginning was to create the social conditions for the Islamic State in Britain and then more broadly into Western Europe and eventually globally. So this, is, this marked an important distinction between Al-Muhajirun and other activist groups that were more into culturing their members, preparing the members for the eventual takeover. Al-Muhajirun said, yeah, that's good, but it's not enough. We need to actually start to prepare society through Dawa. Mm -hmm. So there were always three pillars of their activism here in the UK. Dawa, or calling society to Islam, Hizba, which is commanding good and forbidding evil, essentially the public protests that they do. And then finally, jihad. 
Now, it's important to note that for al-Muhajirun, jihad in the UK was, as much, was really about jihad of the tongue, mm-hmm. which is very similar to Hizbah, okay? Um, in the early years, that was their, their primary role. Now, as we know, later on, things developed, and we can talk more about that, that later in the interview. But in the beginning, that's what, what they were doing. And so people, Omar Bakri was, was a very effective speaker. You know, he connected with the youth and he was able to draw people in. He also was very successful at imparting his ideology to a handful of very loyal young men who completely absorbed his ideas and became, a number of them became effective you know, preachers, you could say, in in their own right, although they were not formally trained. Um, And so what happened was, in the early years, you had this network, or as the book says, scale-free-like network, that centered around Bakri completely. The environment after 9-11, after Operation Crevice in 2004, and especially after the 7-7 bombings in 2005, the environment here in Britain became increasingly hostile. Bakri left. He was under considerable pressure in the UK. He decided to go visit his mom in Lebanon. When he was over there, the British authorities declared him essentially persona non grata and was not allowed to return. Okay? That, pre- that presented a conundrum for his followers. What do we do? Our sheikh isn't here. The first response was, let's go over to Lebanon. So a number of them, a small number of them, actually did that. They went over to Lebanon, hung out with him, helped him get set up there. Eventually, after a few months, they were kicked out. They came back to London fully expecting that the jig was up, that they weren't going to be able to do their thing. To their surprise, they discovered, no, they could actually still do their activism. So people like Anjum Chowdhury picked up from there. And when... When there was, when there is Anjum Chowdhury picking up from there, was there a significant change in the direction of the movement? Was there, were we seeing it picking up from where it left off, or what what happened? What happened there? So at that point in time, ideologically, the group continued to follow the teachings of Omar Bakri Muhammad. Omar Bakri Muhammad has always been the spiritual mentor and the primary teacher for the network. That did not change. What changed was the environment became more hostile for them. So in order for them to to do what they had to do, in order for them to earn their rewards for the afterlife, and you do that by engaging in dawah, hizbah, and jihad of the tongue, they had to be creative, as one respondent once told me. And they had to make adjustments to their activism that were still allowed them to be ideologically pure but were able to continue to do what they wanted to do without the police pressure becoming too intense. And what what kind of creativity are we talking about here? It's pretty simple stuff, really. One thing that many of your listeners will be familiar with are the spin-off groups, right? The spin-off group phenomenon. As we know, the British government implemented a proscription policy over a number of years, and the idea behind proscription was let under the authority of the Terrorism Act 2006 version, we are going to outlaw certain groups for glorifying terrorism. That legislation was aimed in part 
at Al-Muhajirun. So every time the authorities, the, the way it worked was basically this. Al-Muhajirun activists would organize under a certain platform and do some pretty outrageous things that would increase their media profile, which was their intention. They called it media jihad. It was part of their strategy. But that would also increase pressure from the public to do something about this group and also the authorities. And so that group would be outlawed. You know, so this happened to Al Juraba and the Save Sect after the cartoon demonstration, the, car the uh, cartoons against the Prophet Muhammad, because th there was a protest here in 2006, uh, probably went a little too far in terms of free speech. And then the authorities, just, just as part of that investigation, the authorities found other materials of another event in which leading activists were basically calling on supporters to support what was going on in Iraq, you know, during the Battle of Fallujah. And so that led to a bunch of arrests and convictions. Some groups might have collapsed, not al-Muhajirun. What these guys, they still had a core of activists that were dedicated and with respect to this specific adaptation, they formed new spin-off groups. These were not splinter groups. They followed the same ideology, the teachings of Omar Bakri Muhammad. Uh, culturally, it was exactly the same group, but they came up with new names, mm -hmm. names that were not proscribed. So after Islam for UK was banned under prescription, they kind of low, went low key for a few months and then they came out with Muslims Against Crusades, which turned out to be one of its most successful spin-off groups, performing a number of high profile protests, which again was their strategy. The strategy was, let's be deliberately provocative because this is how we are going to do a couple things. First, increase media attention, right? And second, our real audience, the young kids out there, we want them to be finding out about us on the media. And so they, the idea is through the media, they will come and verify for themselves what we are, are all about. So they actually talked about using the media as a way to recruit. And were we seeing, were we seeing the media react or unable to know exactly how to how to treat the groups at the, the movement at this time at the this start of this uh, this ongoing engagement with the media how was the media themselves reacting well i mean the media has been in a difficult situation because britain is one of the world's great liberal democracies and a, a pillar of that is having a free and robust press <laughs> And the fact is, when Al-Muhajirun activists burned the a replica of the poppy flowers on the 2010 anniversary of Armistice Day, a very important celebration here in Britain, throughout Europe, the world, really, um, that was newsworthy, yeah. right? So how does the media cover that newsworthy event without building up the public profile of the group organizing the event. See, that's the challenge for the media. The media has continued to struggle that, with that. Witness the recent media hullaboo about Anjum Chowdhury's release from prison, yeah. right? I mean, Anjum can't even talk to the media now, yeah. right? But it was, it, it was almost as if it was enough to have him be able to look at the cameras, all the attention that that received. It has the unfortunate side of, 
it's tough because on the one hand, Chowdhury's release from custodial, um, you know, from the custodial portion of his sentence was newsworthy. But on the other hand, when we give so much attention to it, does it build him up into an even larger than life figure? The balance, I think, honestly, we're still trying to figure out what the proper balance is. And do, was the movement, uh, were they seeing growth in their following and support as a result of this, this media engagement? Uh, do you, did, did you see through your own ethnography that this was, this was growing, uh, growing the, the movement? Uh, actually, no. And here's one of the ironies. What the media attention did was it created the perception that the group was growing and spreading throughout the country and was, was really a huge threat. But inside the network itself, it was a different story. They were actually really struggling to get people to listen to them, to get them to take their leaflets, to get them to engage with them in a meaningful way. I remember one of my interviews with the leading activists relatively early on in the research we were having coffee at a Costa Cafe in Walthamstow in East London. And we were talking about the, the media and all this. And at one point, he looked at me and said, Mike, um, you know that we're not that big. By this point, I had been hanging out with him for a few months. And you know we're not that big. But in the media, we're huge. And that's kind of how it worked. They, they did thrive in the media glare. Uh, it was one of the dynamics of, of the group. But the group that I observed through my field work was always small. It was always marginalized from other Muslim communities. As time went on, their marginalization increased. You know, at one point back in, in the mid to late 90s, they were able to go into the mosques, into the community centers, and do their thing. And that did allow them to recruit new members. But that gradually began to change over a series of several years. Again, 9-11, Operation Crevice, and especially 7-7, Muslim communities increasingly were willing to say to them, I'm sorry, but your, your message is not welcome here. Um, and it made it a lot harder for the al-Muhajirun activists to get access to the masjids and the community center, which was important because uh, they were always trying to recruit from those venues. Earlier on, you mentioned that there's been no ideological splits within the within the movement. What do you put this down to? Is this something to do with the leadership? Uh, is it something else to do with the organization? What what uh, is this the result of? So one of the interesting things um, that I learned in the study and I talk about this in the book, is that compared to other extremist groups, networks, including Salafi jihadi-oriented ones, there were actually relatively few ideological splits in al-Muhajirun. Um, over a period of many years, the movement was able to maintain a remarkable degree of ideological cohesion based on Sheikh Omar Bakri Muhammad's ideas, and then later on, as those ideas were interpreted and delivered and added to by figures like Anjum Chowdhury, Misner Rahman, Abu Izzadeen, and others. Um, so it, the ideological purity of the movement was always very important to al-Muhajirun. 
One, they didn't like to kick people out. They preferred to keep people in. But one of the few ways that you could get kicked out of Al-Muhajirun was if you insisted on following other uh, preachers, including Salafi jihadi preachers, people like Anwar al-Awlaki or Abu Bashir al-Tartusi. If you started to follow one or more of these individuals, even if you were still going to the Al-Muhajirun events, they would sometimes push people out, including people that had been leading activists at one point. They would kind of nudge them out because they wanted it to be, you know, if you're in here, it's going to be our people, you know, basically Omar Bakri Muhammad, Anjum, several others, our talks. This, this is the ideology. We have the ideas. And if you're going to be with us, that's how it's going to be. They talked about it in terms of absorbing the culture of culturing individuals into the movement. And you were a true member, so to speak. They were never card-carrying members, mm -hmm. but you were a member in the sense that when you intellectually affiliated with the group, and what, what that meant was basically you belonged to a study circle and you were actively trying to learn the ideas um, behind their ideology. So is this ideological... Uh, exclusivity is that also one of the reasons why they didn't expand they didn't grow uh, that you had that person telling you in Costa Coffee that we're actually not that big could that be one of the reasons I, I actually believe that is one of the reasons um, there were various points in the network's development where they could have toned things down a little bit they could have moderated their protests for example and they would have kept people and they would have grown but they that was always anathema to them. We, from their viewpoint, we follow the religion, Islam, as it was laid out by the Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings be upon him, and, and that's how it is. Mm -hmm. And if you can't follow this way, then, you know, we're not interested. So, yes, it is one reason, I believe, why they remain small, because many people were not willing to accept that. But the flip side of that is that many people who were were very dedicated. They were very committed to those ideas and they were willing to work quite hard to engage in Dawah and Hizbah and try to, again, create the conditions that would eventually lead to the Khilafah or the Islamic State. So with, throughout the book, we hear this constant mention of Dawah and Hizbah and it's gone in great detail in the book and what this involves. Could you, for our listeners, go into detail about what exactly uh, what did this involve for, for the, the followers, for the members of the, the, the group, of the movement to be involved in both Dawah and Hizbah? Okay, absolutely. So again, as we've already mentioned, Dawah is a cornerstone of their activism, right? They couldn't essentially do what they were trying to do if they couldn't engage in Dawah. And basically, at the most basic level, it just means calling society to Islam, right? Engaging in religious proselytizing. But al-Muhajirun never really did it quite that way, at least in the early years. If you read Quentin Wiktorowicz's fantastic book, Radical Islam Rising, he talks about the group during the early years. And the portrait that he paints of Dawah during those years is they were actually quite political, the Dawah styles. They would get out there with their atrocity photos, bombing victims, and they would shout outrageous things to the passersby in order to get people riled up. Mm. 
right? And, or, and the idea was let's get them to engage, especially the young kids. Uh, part of my respondent sample includes activists, former activists who were involved at that point in time. And they confirmed Quinton's portrait. They said, yeah, that's how it was. You know, we were out there with the photos, we were shouting things. And the idea was to reach those young kids who were like, wow, what's going on here? This is different. They don't, that's not the Islam that we've been exposed to in the masjid or the mosque, right? This, hmm, I want to go check these guys out. And once they were approached by the young people, they would be very welcoming, very welcome in. Once, once you cross that threshold, it becomes as much about in-group love mm -hmm. as it does out-group hate. Fun, fellowship, doing fun things together, lots of face-to-face -face interaction, very important to building that fellowship of the network. But back to the dawah, the dawah stalls changed over time. Back in the early days, they never used to give out the Quran. Okay. Respondents I've talked to scoffed at the idea. The Quran, we don't give out the Quran. We're here to establish the Khilafah, not give out the Quran. And they kind of laughed at groups, traditional quietist preaching groups that did that. But interestingly, over the period of my field work, that changed. The Dawah stalls became less and less political. When I first started observing them, they weren't necessarily doing the atrocity photos, but they were shouting things out, holding up provocative signs. The same idea, you know, to create that, that moral shock, mm -hmm. as scholars like to call it, um, to, to draw attention to yourself, to reach your ultimate target audience of recruits. Gradually, that changed. As the, as the environment continued to be quite hostile, lots of police intelligence pressure, so that by the end of my field work, it was becoming harder and harder to distinguish an al muhajirun dawah stall from your run-of-the-mill garden varieties stall. Any given Saturday or Sunday, there's, there's going to be you know, a dozen here in London alone. Mm -hmm. um, so, and I saw them giving out copies of the Quran at a Dawah stall. You see, it was a remarkable shift. Yet it was simple, it was tactical, but in one sense it was remarkable for them to do that. They, for them, it was acceptable. It was styles and means, we need to make this change in order to achieve the larger picture, which was call society to Islam and create the conditions for the Islamic State here in Britain. And was this change, this handing out of the Quran, was it happening across the board or was it happening in specific local areas? It, I, saw, I only saw it in specific local areas, so I can't speak to how widespread it was. It's possible that, I don't, that, that that only happened in two or three of the Dawah stalls that I personally observed. I also was able to observe some of it um, through Twitter because at the mm -hmm. time they were still very active and... I was able to see through Twitter because you recognize people you know yeah. who you okay. Um, so I, I don't believe it was just one Dawa star. It was uh, at least you know a couple, several. How widespread that was, I I really couldn't say. And speaking of this about the local effect, I you go through you go through the book and you you see the localities being as key a part as, as the individuals in a way. As, as, so what role did, do you feel that the social ecology played? And what role do you feel that 
it was centering very specific local areas? Or do you feel that, that I'm looking a bit too much into that potentially? Well, I mean, they, look, they recruited through social networks, mm -hmm. okay? And social networks run through communities, yeah. you know? So once you become involved, who are you gonna try to recruit? You're gonna try to recruit your friends, your family members, your acquaintances from the neighborhood, your mates in college, you know, the people that are in your social network. So the social network aspect of it was important for, for recruiting. And the other salient point when it comes to the local aspect of it was the key organizational vehicle for al-Muhajirun to the extent that there was much organization um, was the halakha, the, the local study circle. Because that's where you had small groups of brothers and separately small groups of sisters that would get together on a regular basis. Fellowship was very important to this. You know, it was about hanging, as much about hanging out with your friends and, you know, what are you up to? How are things going? And then absorbing the ideology. Again, Omar Bakri Muhammad's teachings directly when he was here and then through Anjum and a few others after he left. Um, absorbing the ideology, and then, hey, maybe afterwards we'll go out to and get a meal at, at a local, you know, kebab shop. Um, and so again, it was very much about the fellowship and hanging out. It, it's, it's important for us to understand that because we don't get that from many of the media reports that, that are out there about the group. And um, that's unfortunate, just in, in terms of like trying to understand this phenomenon, which is actually quite important here in Britain. Yeah, I always think that that's one of the most important things that we should be doing is is focusing on the the normal everyday events, what it means to be part of this these groups, what it means to be part of these organizations, and what it means external from the ideology, external from the ideologically specific uh, activities. You get to get a real understanding of why someone is involved and remains involved uh, within a group. In Within the book, uh, there's a chapter which you co-author um, with a few colleagues of yours where you talk in depth uh, about the structure, about the, uh, the group, and you talk about a small world-like structure. Could you, for our listeners, describe exactly what you mean by this and what how this gives us a greater understanding into, into this movement. Absolutely. So I talk about with two colleagues, um, Stephen Colthart at the University of Texas in El Paso and uh, Dominic Wright, another colleague. We, we came together and kind of combined my strengths in ethnography with their strengths in network analysis and brought it all together. And basically we were trying to analyze the structure from the perspective of network analysis and, and see how that structure changed over time. And so we used, incorporated a number of measurement, uh, measurements to try and get at that standard social network analysis, centrality measures, looking at the distribution of ties, um, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And um, what we saw, the story that we essentially tell in that chapter and the Journal of Conflict Resolution paper that was an early version of that chapter, what we saw was that over time, the network structure changed. In the early years, 
Um, even like the years of Wiktorowicz's radical Islam rising, it was essentially a scale-free like network in which there was one central figure, Omar Bakri Mohammed, and everything in the network revolved around Omar Bakri, right? Uh, Bakri just jumps out in terms of all the centrality rankings and the distribution of ties. He is the son, you know? Um, but then Bakri left and the environment continued to get hostile. And so we were able to measure that after he left too. And what we saw was a number of kind of second tier activists, people like Anjum Chowdhury and others kind of who, who, who had who had been Bakri's most trusted students while he was here, they took over on the day-to-day -day management of it. Not that Bakri was ever much of a day-to-day -day manager, that's a separate story, but basically as Bakri's sun sets, Chowdhury's and, and others' star rises, and they kind of take over as the leaders and the, the small world network part, that goes back to the holocaust, right? These study circles. So there were a number of these study circles throughout London. Luton had a study circle. Some other cities had study circles, right? What, so these local uh, holocaust or study circles. Now what connected the study circles were the bridge nodes, people like Anjum Chowdhury and others that would visit the different halakas to, sh to spread the ideology, right? To indoctrinate. They weren't micromanaging them. That never really happened. It was just basically about, you know, this is the talk today. We're going to have a talk on, on fiqh, Islamic, Islamic, their interpretation of Islamic jurisprudence, again, based on Bakri's teachings. And so they would go around. But the key point is it wasn't just Anjum. There were a number of figures that, that were playing this role. So it wasn't one bridge that was connecting the different halakas or clusters, as they would say in network analysis. It was several bridges. And that built redundancy into the network so that when the authorities would swoop in periodically and cut one of those bridge links, right, you still had others in place right, to allow the diffusion of ideas and to a certain extent authority as well. Um, and so that's, so the small world-like structure actually proved to be, so we argue, a lot more resilient than the first scale-free-like network centered around Bakri. So structurally, the story of Al-Muhajrun during this period is a shift from a scale-free light network centered around Omar Bakri, again, much police pressure, pound, 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 and then the gradual shaping of this small world-like structure, which proved to be a lot more resilient. So at the time of my field work, that small group, uh, small world network based on the halakas and based on the redundant bridge nodes was very much in place. I want to stress that this wasn't necessarily an intentional strategy. It's not like Anjum sat back and said, oh, okay, this is how we are, this is what we're gonna do. I mean, Anjum's a smart guy, you know, but maybe he's not that smart, you know. Um, it was really much day to day, you know, adapting to survive, adapting to get by another day in the land of the Kufar. 
You know, that's how they saw it. So it wasn't necessarily an intentional strategy. It's something that happened over the period of many decisions over a long period of time. Oh, it's really interesting. It's, I, I think that's having that chapter there uh, towards the, the beginning of the book really, it really sets the scene for, for the readers and really allows them to get an in-depth understanding of what's, of what's going on and what was, what's going on within that, in the movement throughout its, its evolution as well. I'm so happy to hear that because my fear with that chapter was that readers were going to be turned off by the network analysis and put the book down. That's actually what Mark Sageman told me. Mark okay. was like, you're going to lose your readers. You're going to lose your readers. Like, I don't know. What do I do? Keep it in, take it out. I actually struggled over that. Yeah, no, I think it's it's hugely important. And it's one that you can see numerous people going back to, even if they don't have a direct research interest in this movement, that it's really useful. It's really useful for them to have a look at that. Okay. One of the things throughout the book that you see is that there's, you talk about a covenant of security. Now you talk about how that covenant has evolved as well, that in more recent times that that no longer applies within Britain, but at the beginning it was it was definitely there. What, what exactly did you mean by a covenant of security and how did this evolve throughout, uh, throughout your fieldwork and, and beyond? The covenant of security was a core principle for Al-Muhajirun for, for many years. And it was based on their interpretation of scripture. They actually cited specific verses um, in support of this. And basically the idea was, um, if I live in Britain, I am, and I'm a citizen of Britain, although they didn't like to think of themselves as citizens. You know, I'm living here in Britain, my family's here. My life and my livelihood are protected by the British government. So, in the implication is that implicitly I have entered into an agreement or a covenant of security. In exchange for the British government protecting my life and livelihood, I cannot attack my fellow citizens in Britain. This was a core belief of Al-Muhajirun for many years. And I have to say, Anjum Chowdhury was always very consistent in expressing his support of the covenant of security. Uh, there's a number of media reports that speak to this. Um, as you know, I had a different entree and I saw firsthand, I have to say, Chowdhury was always very consistent in his support of the covenant of security. But here's the wrinkle. They would say, yes, we have a covenant of security here in Britain, but they would add, ultimately, that's an individual's decision. Okay. You see, mm -hmm. because there's no caliph, right, overseeing the whole thing to say the covenant no longer holds. You see, mm -hmm. so when Michael Adebolajo went out and, and committed that gruesome murder of off-duty soldier, uh, the Honorable Lee Rigby, um, you know, just beyond the pale, a gruesome attack. Chowdhury refused to condemn Adebolajo in part because of this understanding of the covenant of security. Because although Adebolajo had been indoctrinated into Al-Muhajirun's ideology over a period of several years, he later decided that the covenant of security did not apply to him as an individual. And he basically left 
at that point, and he went on and, and did what he did, first in attempting to, to, to join al-Shabaab by way of Kenya, and then when he came back, and ultimately the tragedy that, that ensued. So within core al-Muhajirun, they were always pretty clear um, that the covenant of security applied. In fact, it, it became a standard question. Like, as you know, um, part of the methodology in the book is, yes, interviews, but it's repeat interviews, especially with the leaders and the veterans. So I wasn't just interviewing people once. I was going back and interviewing them multiple times. And I would often start with, does the covenant of security hold? Because things would happen, you know. Michael Adebolajo murdered Lee Rigby, you know, with his accomplice, Michael Adebowali. So I would go, you know, to, to my contacts and then does the covenant hold? And they would always tell me, yes, it holds. But it didn't apply to that individual. That individual, it doesn't apply. And that's kind of one of the things that, that's misunderstood about the group. As late as 2014, they were telling me the covenant, this is after Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi declared the Khilafah. They were still telling me that the covenant of security applied in Britain, right? Now, in recent years, what's happened is after um, Chadri Mizan Rahman went to jail and, and the authorities did succeed in breaking apart much of the network, what was left? You know, what was left were these residue, residues, individuals that still followed the same ideology, right? But they weren't able to go to Halakha with Anjum Chowdhury. They weren't able to go to Steady Circle with Misner Rahman, right? But they still had many of the ideas. And unfortunately, some of those individuals decided, okay, the covenant of security no longer applies here in Britain. And that's what happened, I believe, to somebody like Karen Boot, okay. right? And linked with the London Bridge attack. Yeah, exactly. The London Bridge attack in 2017, last year, another tragedy. Um, now, there were also many people who stayed in Britain and individually decided, no, the covenant of security still applies. And you, you have that too. You mentioned within that um, about the, the declaration, declaration by al-Baghdadi. What, what was the reaction internally? What what way did al Mahajroon react to this, um, and what was their what was their public response um, to to this declaration of the caliph? Yeah. Well, as I talk, as as you know um, from having read it in, in the introduction, I addressed this issue, mm -hmm. and the declaration was actually a watershed moment for al Mahajroon because. Here you have this activist network that had been around for 18 years at that point. Um, and their goal was always to establish the Khilafah, right? And now the Khilafah has been declared. And so what do they do? What do they do? You know, the group had base, had staked its reputation on this idea. We are creating the conditions for the caliphate, right? That group came under pressure right? If they don't accept the Khilafah as legitimate, then many people that they care about, their target audience, their, their members, are going to see them as just talkers, right? They're going to know better than Hizb Tahrir, who they used to, you know, scoff at. You know, they're here. I mean, Hizb Tahrir, for them, were, they were moderates, you know? So it was a real watershed 
for the group. And there were some members in the network that were basically encouraging the leaders, hey, you know, shake, what's up? You know, is this a kilafa? Has it been declared? You know, and um, I, I believe that, that I do believe that influenced the the decision that that was made. Um, you know, nobody amongst the leaders, you know, went out and started to build bombs or anything like that. But um, you know, there there are reports. It's been reported in the media about how a couple of them went online and did the online pledge. That's been widely reported, and so assuming those reports are true, uh, that's that's what happened, you know, and that gave the authorities the opportunity to arrest them, and eventually, they they actually originally rounded up like nine of the leaders. They only ended up prosecuting um, Anjum Chowdhury and Misner Rahman for their declaring their their support um, for ISIS. In in the meantime, uh, be, before the roundup. Uh, in September of 2014. Um, in the meantime, locally, they had started to do some things on the ground, some like mini protests in which they were declaring their support for the Kilafa. Okay. Right, yeah. Um, what with those, those arrests and also ultimately those two, um, those two prosecutions, what effect did that have on the movement? What do we see happening then uh, or did it change things at all? Well, um, as we were talking about a few minutes, I think one effect that it had was it, it took a couple of the leading ideologues away from their day-to-day -day involvement in the network. And so you, had, you were left with the residues, a number of individuals. You know, we're, we're not talking thousands of people here, right? We're not necessarily even talking hundreds. We're talking about a few dozen, maybe. People commit to different degrees. Um, people were upset. Again, many of those individuals decided, I'm just going to lay low. You know, the authorities are starting to make inquiries about my family. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to, I'm just going to lay low. They've gone through periods previously where they have done that. So, just lay low, kind of wait for the sentences to be served. Um, and then, unfortunately, you also had um, people that decided, okay, I can't engage in Dawa here in the UK, and Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi has declared the Khilafah over in Iraq and Syria. My time has come. It is time to make Hijra. It is time to immigrate and join the just shade of the Khilafa. And that's what individuals like um, Siddhartha Dar decided to do. And, and he wasn't the only one. There were a number of people, um, some of whom have been reported on in the press and, and some not so much, but uh, a number of people made, made that decision. Uh, a, a tragic decision eventually for many, because many of them were, were eventually killed. Um, and so that's, that's part of the tragedy of, of al-Muhajirun. Um, but again, I want to stress that there were other people who decided, no, the covenant of security still applies. I'm going to live my life here in Britain. Um, they gave up essentially their day-to-day -day activism 
They didn't necessarily de-radicalize as our friend John Horgan, you know, he makes that distinction between disengagement and de-radicalization. So they disengaged, but they didn't necessarily de-radicalize. And um, it, it is what it is at this point. Uh, one of the points that comes home really clearly uh, within the book, and you, you emphasize it again uh, in the final chapter, is the fact that it's very easy to pick these high-profile individuals who have gone on to commit violent acts um, and gone to Syria elsewhere or have have committed violence here within the UK. But for everyone who has done that, there are so many others who haven't engaged in the violence. Do you, how, why do you feel that is that that so many have done have have held on to that covenant of security and and even in in the face of of other colleagues, not the majority of their their colleagues, but others in that network going on to that. What has maintained people, some people within the movement from, from not non-engagement of violence? Well, first of all, I, I want to acknowledge the importance of your question because I think that's one of the most important findings from the book mm -hmm. is that many people, it wasn't a conveyor belt in the sense that many people did not escalate to violence as that metaphor is often used. Many people decided to get off the belt um, with respect to this particular situation, um, you know, people had different reasons for not going, right? Um, one thing that often happened in Al-Muhajirun was young, young men and women would come in, they would get involved, they were very active for a few years, and then they would gradually kind of mature out of it. You know, they would, it's very, um, the activist lifestyle, it's hard. You know, the, the pace was frantic. They were always doing stuff. They were under enormous pressure from their, their families. Um, they weren't making any money. So after a few years of this, many individuals are like, you know what, I, I need to get a good job. I want to start a family. And so they kind of burned out and matured out of their, of their activism. So I believe something similar happened to some of the people around that time that were, that were talking. Now, for people that were higher up, the so-called persistent activists that I talk about in the group, a persistent activist is somebody who had been involved in Al-Muhajrum for at least five years. In reality, it was often more. They were totally committed to the ideology. Um, but for them, you know, it, it might have been more about um, jihad of the tongue. Mm -hmm. It, more about Dawa, more about Hizba here in the UK. They didn't necessarily see their role being to pick up the sword of jihad. You know, and every, they understood different people have different roles in the larger movement. And for many of them here in Britain, um, and I believe actually this applies to Anjum Chowdhury, that's how Chowdhury understood his role. Chowdhury was not a fighter. You know, he didn't see himself as a fighter. He was certainly not a bomb maker. That wasn't his role. You know, he had a different role. For him, it was about jihad of the tongue. It was about dawah. It was about hizbah. Within, at this period of time, when you see the imprisonment of Chowdhury and Rahman, we're also need to engage with what was happening for them when they were in prison. 
And one of the points that you make in within the book is that Raman actually comes out, even though he had gone through uh, what would could be termed de-radicalization programs, that this didn't exactly have the effect that was intended. So what do we what did we see happening with Raman? And then we can discuss what with what what is in the news at the moment, just so you know, this this episode has been recorded in, on November 27th, uh, 2018. So we've just, uh, over the past few weeks, had the release of Anjum Chowdhury. But could you tell us what exactly uh, do we see happening for, for Raman uh, with this uh, de-radicalization program and the effect that it had before talking about Chowdhury? Absolutely. So the, the story that you're alluding to is in the concluding chapter of the book, and it's part of this section of the book where I'm trying to think a little bit about what next, you know, what is likely to happen with these, these guys. And I draw reference to, to help me understand that, I tell the story of an earlier period in the network's history when Mizno Rahman, Abdul Mohid, and a small uh, Suleiman Keeler, Abu Izzedine Brooks, a couple other guys, Actually, um, because of their participation in a couple of protests and a speech where they pushed the bounds of free speech a little too far and they were convicted of crimes, they um, were sent away. They were imprisoned. They served different, different periods okay, of, of sentencing. And what uh, Ms. Rahman experienced during that period was um, obviously it was very hard on him and his family. There's that, of course. But he used the time to study. He used the time to study Arabic. He used the time to study, uh, you know, Islamic scripture, Islamic history. And um, he came out even more committed to his views, perhaps, than he was uh, going in. Because for our Muhajirun activists, they always look to the example of the Prophet Muhammad and his companions go back to the early history and they would tell themselves, well, you know, Muhammad was persecuted. You know, the prophet Muhammad was kicked out of Mecca, you know. So what I've done isn't one-tenth of what Muhammad went through, right? And if it's happening to me and it happened to him, hmm, I think I'm on the right path, you know. So it just tended to validate their interpretation and it made them feel like okay i must be doing something right because we know from our understanding of the religion that the kufar you know they're hypocrites they hate you the non-muslims hate you and if you're a true muslim they will come after you they're coming after me therefore i am a true muslim i have to keep doing what i'm doing because that's how i will get the rewards on the day of judgment and with regards to Chowdhury now as well, we've got his release from prison, uh, but it's a release based on a lot of conditions. And you've got, you talk about the, you mentioned earlier on how you've got the custodial sentence, but then you've also got what we, what we have now. Just for the listeners, what are the conditions of, of Chowdhury's release? And how do you feel that this will affect not just him, but the, the movement as a whole? Sure. So, well, as has been reported on in a number of media reports, um, Chowdhury is now on license. Uh, in the U.S., we would call it parole, right? So he's, he's out of prison, but is still serving his sentence. 
And in Chadri's case, as you pointed out, John, he's got some pretty strict conditions on him. For example, he's not allowed to speak to the media. Um, he's not allowed to interact with um, non-familial uh, supporters. Um, he, he, there's a number of things, you know, his communications, you know, he's only allowed to, you know, have a certain like one phone and the communications are being monitored and he can't just go on the internet. And, and this is all designed to obviously limit his ability to engage in Dawa and, and Hizba and, and get the message out. Um, so the, these are some of the conditions that, that he has been imposed on. Now, he is not the first al muhajirun activist, as we know, to, to be imprisoned and then to come out and have to um, perform to be on license. And all the other examples that I looked at in the book and that I talk about, the pattern that emerges is when these al muhajirun you know, when the leading activists come out, they tend to stick to the conditions of the license. There are some exceptions, okay, but they tend to stick to them. Why? Because they don't want to go back into prison, typically, right? And they understand, you know, I have to complete these conditions for a certain period of time, and then I will be free to re-engage. And historically, that is what has happened with this group, that the individuals come out of prison, they're on license, they tend to observe the conditions of the license. Then maybe a couple of years later, they get off license. They are now free to engage, to re-engage. Um, not all of them re-engage, but many of them do. So with, with that in mind, what, what, are the, what do you see as the potential paths for the future of this movement? With everything that has gone before and the direction uh, that you see them leading? What, what do you feel the, the potential paths are and what do you feel the most likely path is? Looking into your crystal ball now. Sure, sure. I mean, obviously, at, at this point, I'm, I'm being asked to, to speculate, yeah. right? I mean, the honest answer is, I don't really know what, what's going to happen in the future. Um, I talk about a couple of possible scenarios in the conclusion you know, so one possible scenario that I talk about is that, you know, miracle of miracles, you know, Anjum Chowdhury truly de-radicalizes, de you know, and decides, hey, you know what, um, I can practice my religion uh, in this country and I can be a proper Muslim uh, without necessarily engaging in the type of dawah that I was doing and the type of hizbah that I was doing. Many people in Al-Muhajirun have had that experience. Um, it, it may be wishful thinking in his case. Uh, the honest answer is, I don't know what's going to happen to him. He may, um, like a number of other people that have been incarcerated in the movement, he may come out even more committed to, to his ideas. And if, if that's the case, then it's about, well, I got to maintain the conditions of license. And then after that, what happens is, is what happens. Um, you know, we may have reached the point, if that is the case, we may have reached the point of diminishing returns on a, you know, a strategy premised on uh, kinetically breaking apart the, the network. You know, at that point in time, the role of civil society 
the role of Muslim communities, the role of uh, Muslim families becomes extremely important. And I kind of wrap up the book with a couple of ideas, um, you know, about that. For what were those core ideas? What were some of the, the ideas that you're putting forward there uh, about that role of, of family, the role of civil society, etc.? Um, don't want to ruin the whole book for all yeah, that. Yeah, I want so people to buy, it. buy it, but just to give an insight into yeah. it. It's funny because I, I don't want to tell you because <laughs> then you won't get the book, but, but a little teaser, a little teaser. Um, so it, it, part of my respondent sample included a number of former activists, you know, people that had been engaged in the network for a number of years and later decided to leave for a variety of reasons, right? And most of those people in my sample, um, they, they didn't escalate to violence, right? Some of them continued some of the same ideas. They gave some ideas up. They left other, they kept other ideas. And some of them left many ideas behind and just basically moved on with their lives, okay? That latter group of individuals, I believe, represents an important resource for the resilience of Britain, right? These are resources that civil society can tap into to help create stronger communities. And I'm not proposing a top-down government-led initiative. This is, would be more organic. It's about civil society. It's about getting people together in, in you know, kind of a small-scale type. Uh, small scale and, and perhaps building out from there. The, the book goes into a little more detail. Hopefully I've whetted the reader's mm -hmm. appetite just, just a little to see exactly what I'm talking about. But I think the role of civil society is very important. We're, I could talk about this book for ages, but we don't want to ruin it all, of course. We want people to go out and buy it, and I would highly recommend people to go out and buy it. Um, when you've got people on the back cover like David Rappaport, Martha Crenshaw, Clark McCauley, Mark Sageman recommending this, you know it's worth buying. You know it's definitely worth buying. But before we finish up, what advice would you give to future ethnographers who are looking at doing research like this, not necessarily on, on Al-Majroon, but on other, on other groups? What do you think the core lessons for you methodologically were um, from this experience? Yeah, great question. I think one methodological takeaway for me was the importance of repeat interviews when studying a group like this. Because what I learned was the first time I spoke to even leading activists that were very much in the public uh, profile, um, the first discussions were never very fruitful. They would often give me the boilerplate you know, the standard grievance narrative, the, the West is at war with Islam and we need to create the Khilafah and this is why these are basically laying out the ideology. So I had to spend a lot of time those first few months letting people tell me this time after time after time. And, you know, you got to keep your cool. You know, sometimes they would say deliberately provocative things to me to test me. Mm -hmm. How is Michael going to react? Is he going to get upset? Is he going to yell at us? He's got to keep your cool. I'm not there to judge. I'm there to gather data, right? I'm here to learn from you, right? You, I'm learning to humility, non-judgmental, very important. 
repeat interviews is, is key, but also the ability to observe them in, in action because, um, you know, there's a difference between what someone tells you and what someone does, you know, and so having that participant observation, I think, was, was absolutely critical. Um, so I, I dug deep, you know, I, I dug deep, and I've, I recognize that not everyone's going to be able to do that. You know, there's, there's no one way to do social science. You know, we recognize this. that's one of the, the values of this series, is that you have people who come in that bring different methodological approaches to their research. You know, there's no one way to do this. And my way in this project was to do ethnography. You know, it wasn't just to do one-shot interviews. It was to spend time with these people, to really get to learn from them, to dig deep. Um, I learned a lot, and I tried to write a book that would allow my readers to learn a lot. Ultimately, it is for the, the reader to judge whether the effort was, was worthwhile. I do draw bigger conclusions. But because I'm a social scientist, and all social scientists, we're supposed to generalize. That's part of our mission. Um, but I do so with humility, because I recognize that this was a very deep dive into one group at one period of time, or oh, a period of time that covered many years, but still a certain period of time. You know. The al-Muhajirun of today, to the extent that it even exists, is different than what I was observing during my years with the network. So a sense of humility is, is important for me to acknowledge as well. No, I think it's, uh, it's a great way to finish up here. And that point that you're making about re repeat interviews, I think that's key. And it reminds me of an interview I did in Series 1 with Julie Chernofwang, where what, her work in Indonesia, one of the core strengths that I pointed out there, and I believe it's the same with yours, is that repeat interview. It's yeah. it's key. It's it's one of the key strengths, both for you and for Julie as well. And we can see that, uh, see the fruits of it uh, born here in this book. I the highly recommend Julie's work. Julie uh, also speaks of the importance of repeat interviews. You're ab absolutely right. We've actually spoken of that. It's 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 something that. I hope people will draw from this. If you want to learn about how to do ethnography, how to gain trust uh, of participants, how to uh, do network analysis, but also how to understand an, a movement like Al-Mahajirun, you can get all of that uh, from Mike's book, The Islamic State in Britain, Radicalization and Resilience in an Activist Network. Uh, there's so much more we could have talked about today, but obviously, as we kept on saying, we want people to buy the book as well. So it just uh, leaves me to say thank you, Mike, for being our opening interview on, uh, on this series two of Talking Terror. And um, we're looking forward to, uh, to seeing what comes next for you in your research. And I'm sure that this will be a great, great success. Thanks again for listening to today's episode of Talking Terror. I hope that you enjoyed my chat with Mike Kenny, all his research. Uh, I would really recommend that you have a look at, especially that book, The Islamic State in Britain, Radicalization and Resilience in an Activist Network. Next week, it's my honor to be talking uh, to Dr. Tricia Bacon about her research looking at why terrorist organizations form international alliances. 
But just before you go, just a reminder, if you want to get that discount from IB Taurus and all the Middle East and politics books from bloomsbury.com, be sure to enter the discount code TALKINGIBT19. That's all one word, TALKINGIBT, and with the number 19. It is in the description underneath uh, the uh, for this podcast. And obviously, if you or anyone you know wants to do a master's in terrorism and counterterrorism studies, be sure to check out that master's that we have on offer here at Royal Holloway University of London, offered from September 2019. Okay, until next week, have a good week. Bye.